Welcome to the Next Level Brands podcast, where we share stories about the food and CPG world with experts in the trenches about how to build a successful brand today. Now, your host, G. Stephen Clear. Thanks today for joining us on the Next Level Brands podcast. We are brought to you today by Kitchen to Shelf, the educational arm of Next Level Brands and providers of online and in-person courses and workshops for CPG entrepreneurs at any stage of growth. If you've got a small business started, you're selling locally or at farmer's markets, then Ready for Retail is the online course for you. From packaging to UPC codes to determining pricing and promotion, Ready for Retail has all the information you need to get ready to sell in stores. More details at kitchentoshelf.com. That's kitchen, the number two, shelf.com. Learn and grow with kitchentoshelf.com. And I'm Steve Clear and very happy to be joined today um, by actually an old friend, but we won't talk about how long. Um, I, I'm here with Dave Hirschkopf and Dave, um, Dave grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, and I've learned some things about Dave I didn't know, believe it or not. Uh, he graduated from Boston University with a BA in Soviet and Eastern European Studies, uh, then realized that actually a career in the spy business was not going to really work for him. So he decided that he would start an offbeat taqueria in Maryland called Burrito Madness. He went all in, paving his way towards innovation with an aspiration for creativity. Then he decided to create the hottest sauce in the universe as a way to control unruly drunk patrons and garnering national attention as a result. He knew he was onto something with customers coming in droves for the exceptional flavor and the heat. Dave's Gourmet was born. Building on his ability to think outside the box, Hirschkopf became focused on expanding unique, his unique approach into other specialty food categories. Noticing a lack of variety in the pasta sauce category, he aimed to design an inventive set of sauces that would be the best tasting and contain the highest quality ingredients he could find. His creations include butternut squash, organic red heirloom, wild mushroom, golden heirloom pasta sauces that have earned him more than 17 prestigious specialty outstanding food innovation awards, including best in category four times and best in industry two times. Over 20 years later, Dave and his team continue to work tirelessly to save the world from blandness and banality, one delicious and original product at the time. So welcome, Dave of Dave's Gourmet. How are you doing today? Um, I'm doing great. Thanks for the uh, the nice intro. Um, So we were talking about just going back. I'm going to roll back a whole number of fancy food shows, Dave, but... um, you can tell me the story behind this because I, I, I don't know it and I, and I want to know. And that is, uh, I think the first time you and I met, you were actually in a straitjacket. That is definitely true. Yeah, I mean, you know, our first product was Dave's Insanity Sauce. And so, you know, I wanted to have fun. And so we thought, gosh, you know, if we're insane, what do insane people do? So I wore a straitjacket. Um, and it was just, it was hilarious to just watch people's faces and, People walk by and then they do a double take and like, what? What is that guy wearing? Um, so, you know, initially our, our booth actually looked like, you know, uh, an insane asylum. And <laughs> we really, we went with it. And we, you know, we rolled out products like demented dills and mad mushrooms and all sorts of stuff like that. <laughs> and and that really, really speaks to some of the, uh, some of the culture that surrounds hot sauces and, uh, and the, and the ever increasing um, usage of those. So when you, when you started in that category though, Dave, it was not a developed category as we know it today. I mean, basically it was kind of Tabasco hanging around and that was it. So, 
so was it really the experience with the burritos on premise that got you into that or did you look at the category and go wow this this needs some shaking up no i mean you know in some ways i was an accidental entrant um you know i wasn't really like "Ooh, here's an economic opportunity to make some money Uh, i was just having fun so you know sitting around the restaurant uh you know it wasn't a super busy restaurant unfortunately so i had a little too much extra time maybe but uh started making these really hot sauces and I started getting these people coming in who loved it and I just thought this is really hot um, but these people were passionate sort of chili heads right <laughs> and so I was just like taken by like it was it seemed like a really cool group of people and you know how how hot could I push it and you know then you have the jokesters coming in who wanted to play jokes with it and it, it just seemed like such a fun group of people that it was just encouraging um and you know at that time there were you know caribbean sort of habanero sauces uh was like the hottest things you could buy but um i thought you know what if you take the the part that's in the pepper and use that directly um could you make the sauce much hotter and that's that worked and that's what insanity sauce was based upon wow um and did you start out you know, going to local stores and stuff, or did you do the trade shows first? How did, how did you ramp up the sauces? Yeah. I mean, initially I was still running the restaurants. So I really had no time. So we went to the national fiery food show in Albuquerque and we got banned from the show and the New York times picked up on that. And so, you know, we, we got this initial burst of media. And so, you know, we were just shipping it to people. And then, you know, these hot sauce stores would call us, uh, we started shipping to them and then other specialty stores and it just sort of took off. Uh, and, you know, then a couple of years later, I, I went full time with it. Um, I'd sold the restaurant. And so, um, you know, it was just a, we were also initially sort of like surprised, I guess, like, wow, this is actually a business. <laughs> and then expanding into the pasta sauces, what was the genesis of that? Yeah, I mean, so so the good news, bad news about really hot sauces and really spicy products is they are exciting and they're fun and they're interesting, but a bottle of really hot sauce can last months or years. So we're never really going to sell that much. Um, and I always had a, a desire to do more and other and always just to move forward. So... Uh, you know, I looked at pasta sauce because you can, you know, you can sell a lot more of it partly and partly because it was just a sea of red and everyone was trying to compete on who is more Italian than the other person. <laughs> um, so I just thought, huh, that doesn't seem that interesting to me. You know, well, how can I do this differently? So I thought, you know, they're using processing tomatoes. They're not really using the world's best tomatoes. Um, and the best tomatoes I, I could find that you would want to eat would be heirloom tomatoes. So, you know, we made a, a yellow heirloom tomato sauce and a red heirloom tomato sauce initially. And, you know, then I just tried to think, you know, think as differently as I could. And like, okay, well, what else tastes good with pasta? Well, they have butternut squash inside the pasta. Why don't I put in a sauce and you can put it on top of the pasta? And, you know, there's mushrooms inside, you know, wild mushrooms inside of the ravioli. Right. Why not put that on top? So it was just sort of like, I was just trying to do what seemed logical to me. Um... And I think one thing that sort of aided aided us over time is this sort of amateur mindset. So like, 
you know, we're not experts looking at reams of consumer data. We're just like, hey, what seems like a good idea? Because uh, we're small, we'll take risks and, and try it. And some things have definitely not worked out, but um, some things have. Yeah, oftentimes I think there is a, a tendency, especially in the larger food companies, to um, do, you know, take massive big data and try to come up with decisions about flavors. And you can look at the product and go, gosh, this really isn't performing well. Or you can do a simple uh, uh, a simple focus group of a few people at a restaurant and try it out and, and, and they don't like it. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't always, combinations don't always work. But uh, Right. Like, I mean, if you think about it, Frankenstein is tall, dark, and handsome, but not handsome. <laughs> right. But he's got a squared jaw and squared head and, you know, so, so like on paper, Frankenstein might be a, you know, a, a guy who would get a lot of dates. But um, the reality is you just, you know, some of these things are sort of cobbled together and they lack inspiration and they lack heart. Um, uh, but... You know, I think you can definitely learn from, from consumer information and, and you know, tre- trends and all that. But um, I think there has to be some initial inspiration of like, hey, wouldn't it be great if? Um, uh, and I think that's that's usually what creates better products. Yeah, and the, and, and combinations of things you, know, you put together that you don't necessarily think would work together uh, will work, you know, sometimes just, just fine. Um, what came after the pasta sauces, Dave? Well, that's an interesting question. So, um, you know, then the individual products, certainly that comes since, but uh, the next line of products was the creamy hot sauces. So we came back and we were trying to say, you know, what's a hot sauce that is more usable for more people that, you know, is something that would really move the market forward. Right. Uh, and so we came up with the creamy hot sauces, which are, they're actually vegan, but they're whipped at high speed so that, they have this much more interesting mouthfeel and they're much more savory. So not, not based on a ton of vinegar, um, you know, garlic, onion, peppers. Uh, and so that's, you know, that came out like three, three ish years ago and that's growing really fast. And then we, uh, we launched a sister company, Dave's naturals and launched overnight oats in that company. Um, you know, overnight oats are, are huge on social media and there's so many beautiful versions of it there. Yep. Uh, but it's, you know, you really can cook it like oatmeal in the microwave if you want, but you're supposed to soak it overnight and it has some, some digestive benefits, but really like the liquid absorbs a flavor and has a different texture and, um, it's just really delicious. So, um, we launched that and that's actually doing really well, really well and growing quickly. And Dave, from uh, the entrepreneur business point of view, um, again, were you looking at selling the oats to people who are also buying sauces or because it's a different category, different buyer, you have to do a different different pricing structure, everything. Were you looking to sell to the same audience or was this more of, um, you know, trying to you know, get a product out there that was healthy for those people that were, you know, looking for, for basically healthier breakfasts? Um, you know, uh, businesses, uh, small businesses are often, you know, have the benefits and death and limitations of their founders and, and who run them. So, you know, for me, I, 
I'm sort of ADD, always looking for the next exciting idea, but I'm not always as strategic because I'm not really as money focused. Um, so, you know, the oats weren't a strategic thought about like, wow, this is the, this is the next thing we can feed to our exact demographic and this and that. Um, it was just something we thought was, was cool um, and that people would enjoy. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't a revolution, but we thought, you know, this is much more convenient than people making it themselves. So, yeah. you know, we want to give them a convenient, delicious alternative. And, you know, there's some overlap because they're specialty food consumers. But um, I wouldn't call it like, uh, you know, the next logical step if you're a sauce company. Yeah, that that's true. But it might be logical in terms of how your consumer sees sees things. Um on the thing of consumer trends, Dave, um, the vegan, plant-based, gluten-free, all that, has any of that trend in the dieting actually helped propel sales for the spicier products, the sauces and hot sauces? Yeah, I mean, you know, all this stuff does overlap in this, in this sort of world. You know, you have the specialty food market and then you have the natural food market and you know, really like, a, you know, 70, 80% of the products are both. And it sort of becomes more of a, you know, how do people position it on their, with their packaging and their call outs and all that sort of thing. So, you know, we've always been uh, flavor first and you know, we everything we make, we, we have to think it tastes great. Um, but, you know, we also have always tried to, you know, do natural and where we can afford it, um, organic. Uh, so, you know, we've always been natural without like beating our chest that we're this you know, incredible natural thing. Um, so in the pasta sauces, we've made organic, organic pasta sauces for, uh, you know, for 18 years. So, um, so we're both, and it certainly plays to both. Um, you know, and I think more, uh, more educated consumers or consumers that spend the extra time and effort just to look at ingredients and things like that. They, you know, a lot of them are, are both also. Yeah. And it, it, it does tend to run in the, run in the same circles. Um, let me ask a quick question about, um, e-commerce and, um, obviously Amazon, the, the Leviathan out there, but, uh, wh- how do you handle and, and, and what's Dave Gourmet doing on, on the e-commerce front? Yeah, so, um, you know, we certainly work with Amazon, uh, you know, and if you sell the big grocery chains like Kroger and Walmart, uh, you know, Safeway Albertsons, you know, you're, you're almost automatically in their e-commerce systems, too. So so we are, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't call us the most digitally savvy uh, organization, um, but we certainly understand it. Uh, you know, when you have heavy glass jars like pasta sauce, yeah. it becomes direct to consumers just automatically challenging because the shipping cost is so high. So we have never pushed as much as we could have because we know like going in, most of what we sell is pasta sauce and we're, we're at such a logistical disadvantage to make it work. Uh, so, um, you know, on the hot sauce and the oats, we certainly have, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, consumers buying, um, you know, through the web, but, um, with the pasta sauce, it is more challenging. Yes, weight is a uh, you know is an issue, um, and, uh, and and breakage is a, another issue. Which you know, because 
unless you can encase everything in styrofoam, which is not really good for the environment, um, it's tough to, to ship glass things any length without, you know, getting some amount of breakage. And that comes back on, of course, comes back to you, um, the manufacturer, and um, not the easiest thing. Um, well, I go back a little bit for, we were talking about the fancy food shows over the years, and you do both fancy food shows, both both coasts. Have you done Expo East or West yet, or no? Yeah, we've done uh, Expo West for, for a while. For a while? Um, and we did the Expo East two or three times. Yeah. Um, and from the manufacturer's point of view, what do you see as the differences in the, in the two shows and the, and the, the buying publics as it were that go to them? Uh, you know, when you're talking about actual buyers, like store buyers, it's very, very similar. Um, uh, you know, it probably becomes a geographic thing, you know, the, the Eastern fancy food show is stronger. Whereas I think the, the West coast expo is stronger right now. Uh, so they, they pull a little more of the buyers, but you know, you'll see a lot of the same buyers at, at multiple shows. Uh, expos, you'll see more of these mom and pop natural food stores. And I think at the fancy food shows, you'll see more, you know, mom and pop sort of, uh, gift stores, uh, you know, candy stores, um, some of these. But otherwise, there's a ton of overlap. Um, I I see, again, a number of the same people and stuff. I think um, it was two, actually, so I forget how long I've been going to Expo East, but or Expo West, rather. But it in walking the show, it's very, very different. Two years ago, I actually manned a booth with a client for the vast majority of the time. And, and, and that was, it was really, um, opening to be on the other side as it were, you know, because I've always walked the show and talked to people and you see friends here and there and whatever, and you get tired. But when you're actually having to serve people samples and talk about the food all day long, it's like, I don't know how you guys do it. I really don't. <laughs> it's an amazing, uh, amazing yeah, show. Think- you know, do, do you get... The, the interaction, Dave, you get a lot of the interaction with customers and stuff at the shows? Um, yeah, I mean, um, you know, I actually like trade shows. I find a lot of people in the industry <laughs> do not like them. Uh, I but, like them. Um, you know, it's fun because you get, you know, A, you do get fans. So you get people that come up and say, oh, your stuff's great. And that's incredibly gratifying because otherwise you spend your years sitting in an office. Right. Um, and you'll see certainly emails coming in um, that are nice. But so, so that and it's sort of interesting to see all the other products there and get a sense of where the industry is going and talk to buyers face to face. So yeah, the, the problem with trade shows is that it's just hard to be on for eight hours. So like your your attention and your energy levels yeah. are constantly like com- coming and going. Uh, which is why, you know, really, if you're going to manage a booth, you need to have enough staff where people can take breaks um, and you sort of rotate people around and, and and sort of encourage, you know, high energy. Yeah, we actually had uh, um, my client rented a house and we were all staying in the house. And, you know, again, same thing as people were, you know, taking turns during the day and spelling off and, and whatever and, you know, running food back and forth, which was was great. But yeah, I, I enjoy the shows. And I think, you know, obviously seeing trends and stuff. I mean, um, outside of 
Um, I mean, last year's Expo West was was CBDville, and and that was just amazing to all these companies I'd never heard of, and and everything in the world with CBD in it, and it was like you know I'm waiting for the CBD hot sauce, Dave. Is that that coming down the pike? Um, you know, Numerous people working on it, and we're certainly thinking about it. <laughs> uh, the question is with CBD. I mean, you know, you don't need like 50 doses a day of CBD. So, I, the question is, in what format do you really want to take it? I mean, if you're getting it in a gummy and you're getting a little oil of it, and you can put in cookies and so many things and in drinks, I mean, do you really want it in your sauce too? Um, uh, you know, we're, we're, our thing is not to plan every trend we can to, to leverage every bit of business we can. So, you know, I think about like, yeah, is that really a benefit to the consumer? Is that really like, does it really help anyone? Or are we just trying to like say, hey, give us your money? It, it, yeah, so, it's, yeah. It's, it's really tough to know, uh, particularly with the, you know, how efficacious or what the dosage level is or whatever. It's like, so my elbow hurts. I want to rub something on it. How much, how many times a day do I have to do that? Or do I, do I take two pills or do I take five today and two tomorrow or whatever? It's That will all be sorted out, I assume, over time. How about the um, um, situation with ghost pepper? So I'm going to teach you, were you using ghost pepper a long time ago before we all knew about it or what? what's the... Uh, What's the deal with, with that? It, it now is infamous. Well, you know, there, it was interesting because, you know, habanero slash scotch bonnet was really like the hottest pepper, you know, for, for decades. And so the hottest known pepper. But then it changed pretty quickly. So, you know, it seemed like ghost pepper was the first big change and was definitely much, much hotter. And it sort of caught on. So, like, you know, we have a ghost pepper sauce. Um, yep. and we were right early in that fray. Uh, but then, you know, ghost pepper got dethroned as the hottest pepper, you know, and then quickly that got dethroned. And so there's been like three or four switches or, you know, there's probably like six or seven peppers that are, or five or six peppers that are hotter now. Uh, but you know, because it switches around so fast and I think consumers haven't really attached to the newer ones that ghost pepper is like the big one. And, and quite frankly, at a certain point, doesn't really matter. I mean, it's so much hotter than you can handle for most people that, you know, that's all they really need. <laughs> right. If the, the inside of your mouth is burned out, it's really neither here nor there. Is that the Scoville scale? Is that what that is, Dave, that measures those? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Scoville scale based on Wilbur Scoville, uh, it's, it's a scale of dilution factors, right? So if it takes a thousand drops of water to eliminate the heat from one drop of sauce, then that is considered 1,000 Scovilles. Oh, I never, I never knew that. Okay. So it, yeah. it's re- reaction to how water manages to counteract it. And that's it. So um, so five or six really beyond ghost pepper. That's amazing. And where do, are, do these grow particular, I mean, tropic places or deserts or where, where do hot peppers really, you know? Um, yeah, hot peppers definitely like warm weather. So that's. Uh, that's definitely true. And, you know, and some of these, uh, like the, the reaper and stuff like that are, you know, they're really more engineered than they are naturally occurring. Um, you know, so like we have scorpion sauce, which is based on the Trinidad scorpion, which is native to Trinidad. But, um, some of the newer ones are more crossbred and all that. I, I, that would be a dangerous job. I think trying to crossbreed peppers. like 
in case, in case you ever get any on you. Not good. Um, yeah, you know, especially uh, if you work with like the dry, the dry spice version of that stuff, it right. really can become a breathing hazard. <laughs> yeah, don't wear ma- wear masks. That'll be the next thing. We'll you buy a bottle. We, you get the mask with it when you when you open it. Um, going back, so we we try to, to you know to get information out, Dave, to ba- basically budding entrepreneurs as well as as guys like yourself have been successful in specialty and gourmet. Um, if you were, you know, and again, looking back, what are the important things really within the business for being able to sustain and obviously money, but being able to sustain and actually build a brand the way you have, what, what do you look at as those building blocks? Say one more time. Um, the building blocks to a successful brand. If you were, if you were talking to somebody, you were mentoring somebody and, and said, hey, you know, I, I think these are the basic things that, you know, you should probably have in place in order to make it in this, uh, you know, make it in this. I'm sorry, David, cut out for a minute. I want to see a nail and the hammer and all things, but a product guy. So uh, as a product person... I will always say that your product and the way you package it are the way to build a brand. So if, you know, if, if your product is much better, um, that, you know, that goes word of mouth and that is much more powerful because then you're being pulled forward. Um, as opposed to, if you come out with an average product, which by definition, most products are average, right? That's what it means. Right. You're pushing and that's expensive and um, difficult, and, and that's what most companies do. And you certainly have a lot of companies, especially big companies, that are very good at pushing. You know, they really understand how to market and, and, and sell and all that. Uh, so the number one thing you can always do is make the product as good and differentiated as possible. Uh, so, you know, like Insanity Sauce was much hotter than anything else at the time. Um, the butternut squash pasta sauce was totally different and one best in categories, so it was also very good. Um, our labeling on the um, on the pasta sauces was a sort of white simplicity, which is very different than everything on the shelf at the time. Uh, so, you know, that, that helped the business sort of pull itself forward, even though, you know, we're not huge blocking, tackling, marketer, grocery people. Um, so, you know, and likewise, you know, they're like, harmless harvest coconut water is just you know it's, it tastes better to me it tastes better than a lot of the other coconut waters and, you know so in every category you have you know one or two products that are really just standouts and, and that that really builds the brand um, you know the other thing is you know you, you need enthusiasm so someone's got to be enthusiastic the, the passion uh, it's the passion sorry it's the passion as they say right you, you need to have that yeah, I mean, because, you know, if, if you're not excited about it, um, that communicates. And if you are, that, that also communicates. So, you know, and now with obviously, you know, social media and such, if you're, you know, if you're entertaining in any fashion and you're passionate and you get on there and just talk about what's so great about it, it's believable because people will see it. Um, speaking, 
speaking of social media, Dave, that's something that has come up to the forefront, you know, during the time you grew the business. Um, how, how do you deal with social media and how are you using it to help pull uh, the products and, and probably push them too? Yeah, I mean, we haven't used social media uh, as much as we should have probably. Um, you know, it becomes a little more confusing sometimes for us because, you know, you've got these hot sauces that are like, they have this one sort of personality and then you have pasta sauces with a different one. And then the oats, it was also like, you know, what, what should our public face look like? And will we understand like the complexity of that? Uh, but but certainly with, with social media, I mean, you need to, you know, it, it's like with the product, you know, content is king. You know, if you can be like enthusiastic and passionate and entertaining and give them something to actually like watch um, that, that they want to share, that's, that's you know, a key, a key thing. And then, you know, there certainly are, are social media personalities who you scratch your head and you're like, gosh, ha, how could this be so popular? <laughs> but, um, you know, you have to somehow um, just have, have, have to be culturally tuned in um, to sort of have a sense of what people really want and what, what they'll, you know, what they'll attach to. And you have to take chances. Um, and in some cases, you know, as an owner of a business, you also have to be aware that like, you know, hey, I'm not good at sales. I need to find someone else who's good at selling or I'm not good at operations and details. I need someone else who can do that. And that could be the case with social media and all that. You know, you maybe need someone else who's, who's, you know, more entertaining and more lively and all that. Yes, let professionals handle this. <laughs> it's one of those. Yeah. I, I, I think there, yeah. there's some entrepreneurs I've talked to who were have been surprised about the amount of time they've actually had to dedicate or have people dedicate to social media because the consumer begins this um, you know relationship and they expect that that they're going to hear like right back from you and they're going to you know all the other things that have become so immediate with us now so it's it's a bit more of a caretaker than having to deal with letters coming into your your customer service people for, for good right. or bad right absolutely um, but, you know, the problem is, you know, you get these gold rushes, right? So, like, the, you know, obviously, like, CB and this and that are, are gold rushes in terms of product. But, like, now you have, you have social media and then SEO and you have influencer marketing and, you know, sort of the broader category of digital marketing. And these are all these massive gold rushes where agencies spring up left and right and inundating you with solicitations and... You know, so many people are doing it and competing for attention and they're doing it in a similar sort of competent way, like a big company would do. Like it's competent, but it's not inspired and it's not really, it doesn't feel as sincere. So you have to sort of like, you know, doing something that's better than nothing, I suppose, but you have to be aware of that too. Like there's a gazillion people out there um, and will it really move the needle or is there something you can do that's more sincere and more more like real content that you can really attach with consumers yeah i think that's a very good point i mean there's so much stuff out there and a lot of it is just noise um and trying to find you know because i'm a cook so you know um i look at a lot of those things 
not only for business, but for pleasure. And you eventually you kind of filter things down. And I think maybe social media is kind of like both of our other mass medias, you know, were in their early days, both television and radio, where there were some really outrageous personalities and a whole bunch of stuff that people really didn't want to watch, but you needed to fill time. And, and so social media tends to be that way a little bit too, but I've found some uh, amazing chefs, you know, who have sites and, um, you know, get out, you know, the information. And I've also come across some people that are, it's very spurious information and it's very obviously being, you know, paid for, uh, what, what I think we used to call advertorial was the phrase. Um, but obviously being supported by a company and, and, you know, not really out there to, you know, share, uh, the passion and the knowledge, which is unfortunate, but there are a lot of other ones who are. So, you know, we kind of have to, we have to sort that out and your consumers, you know, have to sort that out as well. Um, right. And I think the other, other thing with all that is that, you know, the internet opens you up and digital marketing opens you up to, to the world, but really you need to figure out who are your people. Um, and the internet also gives you the ability to highly target. So, you know, find your people and communicate to them. Um, cause the other, you can't be all things to all people, especially if you're small and on a smaller budget. So, you know, go find your people and connect to them and get them following you and get, you know, get their rate of engagement up. Um, and, you know, and that excitement level up. And I think that's, that's much more effective strategy. Yeah, I, I think it is too. It, it also is, it, it also helps for, um, for entrepreneurs and smaller companies to compete with larger companies, um, because they can get to their audience and they can develop a, a brand loyalty, um, which is, you know, of course important. And then the other part is, when I look at Amazon, for instance, and the amount of information that clients can get and provide, you know, to me for analysis of me, I'm I'm blown away. If if I'd had that level of the the depth of knowing what keywords were used, there were they were searched, did they buy, didn't they buy? When I was doing television and mass television advertising for food products, I would have just, you know, I would have bowled over. Um, you know, we could have taken off half our advertising and, and put it other places. So I think that's a huge advantage, but that's one that, you know, really a, a Nestle or a ConAgra really has no advantage over you in, I mean, other than more money to spend, but in terms of targeting, you can get to your target probably much more quickly than they can to theirs. Right, right. I mean, it's also like, you know, I was talking, we're going to the snack line and I was talking to someone who might work with us on helping produce it um, that also has a snack line, but they're, they're much bigger. Uh, and, you know, there's some conversation on are we competitors or are we working together? And, you know, I said to them, look, you, know, you want to be a hundred or $200 million line. Um, you know, we're not looking for anything like that. So, so one of the advantages of being small is, you know, if your goal is not to be a billion dollar company or whatever, uh, you know, you can play in all sorts of niches and have a great business and, you know, great lifestyle and all that uh, and do really well. Uh, and, you know, it might be that you're below the radar or, or you know, the big companies don't even want that business. You know, it, it could be a $12 million piece of business, um, that niche. But, like, you know, big companies don't 
don't want to bother for $12 million. But for, for a lot of entrepreneurs, that's pretty darn good. Yeah, and especially if your margins are, are where they should be, you know. It, it helps. Yeah. Um, speaking of, Dave, can you talk a little bit more kind of about, you, you mentioned snack, um, kind of what's next in the Dave's Gourmet portfolio or what are you what are you looking to do a little ways down the road? Yeah, so, you know, Dave's Gourmet, uh, you know, we have some new pasta sauces uh, coming out uh, this fall slash winter. Yeah. And we um, are working on a couple of new hot sauces. So I think one of those will definitely come out. Uh, and then we, um, under Dave's Natural, our quote-unquote sister company, we have been working on a line of snacks based on vegetables um, because, you know, Americans – that you know cbd and all these things are trends right and and protein is one of the trends more and more protein but americans eat plenty of protein uh, we get more than enough protein we don't get enough of this fiber and certain micronutrients because we don't eat enough vegetables um, right so you know work on how do we make vegetables delicious and attractive for people to snack on and then and also how do we combat the trend in the industry of like taking a bunch of potato flour, throwing in a tiny bit of vegetable content, puffing it up and calling it a vegetable snack. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're trying to like give people something that's really a vegetable snack. It's truly healthy and truly delicious. So that's, that's, that's taking a lot of my focus right now. That's exciting. I mean, look, looking, looking forward to that. Yes. There's, there's, um, the, the plant-based, uh, I was having a discussion with somebody the other day about ingredient and you know, they, they came, kept mentioning and I kept reading about the the humble pea that the 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 pea apparently is um a new protein thing of choice because it 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 is you know uh, it has so much of the good stuff in it it grows rapidly it grows all over the place um and even beyond the pea itself the pod also is very usable as is the vines um you know that that are on it so it's it's I don't want to say it's the new kale because I don't want to doom it to that but um but peas definitely have come out of uh, nowhere to be I think the next hero vegetable yeah well, absolutely it's definitely it's definitely one of them uh, you know the, the confusing thing about all this is that you know you know we're in the industry so we read tons of articles on this kind of stuff but like I had a day like a few months ago where I was reading Tom Brady's diet, right? So he avoids lectins. So no beans, no nightshades, no this, no that. Um, so, okay, you're not supposed to eat beans or nightshades or all this to avoid inflammation. Okay, I understand. Then the next thing is I get one of my industry newsletters that comes in. Top three things you must eat this year. Number one, beans. Beans. Legumes. So I'm yeah. like, like, do I eat beans or do I not eat beans? Um, so that's, you know, that's part of the hard thing of our industry is like, you know, there's a lot of conflicting information and, and consumers are being whipsawed around. So like, you know, how do you, how do you chart a more sort of consistent long-term path of what's like sort of common sense, um, while being sensitive to the fact that, you know, they are, they are reading the Tom Brady diet and they are seeing that they have to have beans and, you know, how, how do you sort of help them navigate as, as you're also trying to figure it out. It, it, it does take an awful lot to sort through that. And it, it's, 
you know, I, I do joke about kale. I joked about white Zinfandel when it was out too, that there was, there was no way there were enough Zinfandel grapes being grown to produce all the white Zinfandel. Um, and, and I think maybe that, that happens. And now I'm, I'm, I'm worried about cauliflower because I loved cauliflower from when I was a kid and, you know, and now all of a sudden it's like everything with cauliflower and it's like, oh goodness, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't know what farmers do in terms of planning for crops like this, which is, you know, um, you know, how do you go out two or three years in the trends and go, you know, we should be planting cauliflower this year and, and maybe peas the next. It's one of those, one of those things. Yeah, well, I think I think the um, you know there's several things with that, right? So so one is you know cauliflower is more of a short-term proposition, but I mean if you're like a nuts or something like that, we have to grow a tree that won't even have nuts for four years or, or you know whatever. That's even tougher, um, you know. And then you know then a lot of us smaller companies we're sort of always riding the the, the supply tail of big companies, you know, like. Um, like we really want compostable, you know, you know, packaging for like coats, cups, like oats come in. Sure. Um, really a great compostable solution that actually gets implemented. But until a big company really pushes it, there's just not enough volume to to make it happen effectively. So, you know, it's always sort of like these supply chains can be difficult because like you're you're trying to figure it out. Like you, know, you contract for things like maybe cauliflower. But like that farm could have a crop that just like, you know, gets rotten and doesn't, you know, gets bugs or something and, you know, you're left with nothing. So it's, you're always hoping these big companies will jump faster to create supply chains that we can all take advantage of um, together. Yeah. And there's also some historical, um, you know, with, within the different crops, there are historically some ones that have operated under long-term contracts for years and others that, that are totally open market. And, um, you know, if something happens, as you mentioned, you know, all of a sudden the price can go crazy or, um, or the, or a large company like a ConAgra or whatever already has everything contracted and therefore there isn't a whole lot left for everybody else. And uh, it makes it it makes it a little tough. Um, the good news is, though, is if you're not, you know, you, you, you probably can squeak out some type of supply somewhere if you're not doing, you know, a million cases of something. So yeah, that that can work. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, you'll probably have to take some chances, though. <laughs> it's one of the things you have to do. Um, so I, I'm getting a little bit. Uh, down the line on time. So Dave, let me ask you a question, which is um, the, you talked about, you know, building the brand and whatever. Um, is there sort of one piece of advice you would have to someone who is aspirational at this point, who basically maybe doesn't have a, or has an idea for a product or a, a passion for the business or whatever that you would give them counsel going forward? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the piece of advice I've always given that really doesn't change, I think, is, you know, get outside of your friends and family and, you know, make up some samples and test it with a bunch of consumers. Um, but, you know, don't test it with you standing in their face going, do you like it? Do you like it? Because they're going to say yes. <laughs> I spent um, all night making this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they don't want you to make hurt your feelings. So, you know, test it in the most objective way possible. And you can Google how to, you know, Ulster articles on basic market research that will tell you how to how to ask questions and all that. So, 
you know, test it out and find out like, hey, do they like it? You know, be like, does it actually lend something that they can't already get? Because if you're giving them the same thing, but $3 more, why would they buy it? You know, so like, you know, are you actually giving consumers something they're, they're going to buy and they like? Um, so you know, that's the thing. Make sure there's a strong reason. Um, and find out the details because it may be that they don't like it now, but if you add a spice to it or put it in a different package or, you know, there's so many like little changes you can make where maybe then they do like it. Um, so that's, you know, that, that's that pivoting of like, it didn't work one way, but it worked another way. And there's gazillions of examples in business offices, businesses that got huge on their pivot, but their right. original idea was a failure. Yep, for sure. Well, Dave, I appreciate it very much. And I also, uh, on behalf of myself and, and the folks listening in, thank you for taking the time uh, to be with us today and to talk about the business. We are all looking forward to new sauces and uh, both pasta and hot, as well as uh, as well as snack, which we uh, will will talk about in the in the future. If you would uh, grace us by coming back. Well, I appreciate it. I always love to come back, and um, you know, thanks for thanks for sharing with, with up, you know up and coming entrepreneurs because um, you definitely can can avoid mistakes by doing a little bit of uh, listening. Thanks once again, Dave, and thank all of you for joining us here on the Next Level Brands podcast. Podcast was brought to you today by Kitchen to Shelf, the educational arm of Next Level Brands and providers of online and in person courses and workshops for CPG entrepreneurs at any stage of growth. Whether you're an early stage startup, a local growing business, or if you want to expand your distribution to a national level, Kitchen to Shelf can help you learn what you need to know to grow. That's kitchentoshelf.com, kitchen, the number two, shelf.com. Learn and grow, kitchentoshelf.com. This is Steve Clear. Thanks again, and we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to the Next Level Brands Podcast with G. Stephen Clear. Learn more at Next with two X's, levelbrands.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the Next Level Brands email list or subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode.